Welcome to Fretknot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretknot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work, and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, my string of choice, the inventor of the original nylon string for guitar, and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. You can check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Drew Ford, Grammy award-winning violist, co-host of Faking Notes podcast, blockchain entrepreneur, and one of my favourite people on the Instagram sphere, where he's otherwise known as That Viola Kid. Drew, what is a lesson you've learned that has been the most meaningful to you? I, what, what I think is like really important, and this is something I grapple with as well. We as artists, it doesn't matter how famous, quote, quote, we are or how much attention we get. That attention does not automatically equate dollars. And that's something that people don't understand, but they will understand. And I think they are starting to understand because ubiquitous platforms like Patreon are becoming more mainstream go fund me. Like these things are inherently, I think it's okay to start a Patreon Rosie, because like at the end of the day, you make art and you make art for free. So how, if, if, if you aren't making your art for free, when are you going to work? Right. And if you're not making your art, then you're not doing anything. Right. So it's, it's, it's creating a, a, a it's like laying down railroads for you to get supplies to your business, to who you are. It's, it's not asking. And I don't think it makes you less than at all. Like I have a Patreon with my podcast and like, frankly, that's the only way we're able to like afford the programs needed to run the podcast. We're not making money off of it. Uh, we're essentially taking all of it and reinvesting it back into the business, but that's, that's where it starts. Mm. I, I think one of the problems with our industry is we don't have, kind of an open forum for like this is what uh we're paid uh and i think that's good and bad it's good because it, uh, it, it pricing is very difficult because it takes in a lot of factors how long have you been doing it what's your prior experience what have you been paid before um what is the strength of your brand do you even want to do it like that's all variable and it varies from every person right as you said a 10 year old is going to be psyched to get 100 bucks but like a 30 year old who has kids 100 bucks that's it that's you can't even leave the house for less than 400 dollars. you know what i mean because like you might as well be doing something else with your time uh, and our, and, and another factor is when one is, is, uh, you know, getting better at their craft, they should be compensated for their, uh, their efficiency at creating the value, right? Which is the music, which is the art and you get better and you get more efficient every single year. So, but that's not really priced in. And I think it's bad. So that's all the good stuff. Why we don't talk about it because it's hard to establish, a like a baseline because there are so many different variables, but I think it's bad. It's bad that we don't talk about it because then the market 
undervalues the work that we put in on an industry-wide level. And then it kind of like creates this income divide between the top 1% of all performers and then the 99%. Like if you're not, you know, a household name, you can't charge this certain amount of money, but that's not necessarily true. And, and so it's, it's just, that's why when I talk to, to, um, kids at colleges and when I talk to, you know, my entrepreneur friends, it's like, just your, your brand, just build your brand because you can then get leverage. I've started understanding my prices because I've just started saying no. If people want to pay me something, I say no. And I walk away. Sometimes they'll come back with a higher price because they want you. And that's when you kind of know. There's a great book that I want to recommend to you and your listeners if you haven't read it yet. It's called Never Split the Difference. I think it's by Chris Voss. And he is a hostage negotiator for the FBI who has like who has like negotiated life and death situations and he breaks down the mechanics of negotiating. My friend Nathan Chan, he's who's a cellist with the Seattle Symphony, bought it for me randomly and I read it and it changed my life because it really shows that if you don't value yourself, if you don't value where you're coming from, if you don't like think what you're doing has value, you're never going to be able to negotiate a fair rate for your time. So you have to be willing to get a no. And it also talks about how, how you speak with your counterpart and, and kind of figure out whether or not you're the right person. And this is the last thing I'll say about it is uh, I was at the Grammys to it 2020. And I was talking to a, an oboist friend of mine and she was talking about how she was breaking her back. She developed tendonitis and all this other stuff. Cause she was teaching, she was doing weddings, she was playing with schools. She was doing a bunch of stuff, but she's in her thirties and she's a great player and a professional. She was like, yeah, but I, I, these gigs don't pay enough. And I'm like, look, High schoolers need gigs too. And that's it. Like not every gig is for you. And as you get better, you kind of don't have to do every gig that crosses your path. And that's okay. That means you can do one wedding for $10,000 instead of a thousand weddings for a hundred. Mm, and then instead of having people in their thirties who feel sort of annoyed about lowering their prices just to get work, you'd have people who can sort of use that money you'd access this demographic that can really value that amount and mm -hmm. for whom you know that money really goes a long way i mean a hundred dollars equates to something very different when you're in your teens than when you've got a family to support so yeah i suppose it's a little bit finding people for whom that fee is appropriate or who would be jazzed to do it here's the deal mm. i'm not excited to play another person's wedding i'll do it I, there's a fee associated with it because i've been doing it since i was 16 mm. But you, if you only have a budget for $200 and you want a string quartet, hire some kids from the local high school. They will be jazzed to do it. Mm. They will rehearse to get ready for your wedding. Like they will put their heart and soul into mm -hmm. it more than a professional who could, who just pretty much shows up in sight reads and plays to a very high level. But to them, it's not the same thing. Mm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Different yeah. people can provide different services can be rendered by different people, different skill levels. It's, it's like, you know, why would you hire, would you hire a DIY like contractor to build your house 
would you have them like fix your shelf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why I practice. I don't want to. I, I want people to like feel embarrassed to ask me to play their wedding. If you don't know me, and you're coming off the street and you want me to play your wedding for $150. I want you to feel embarrassed for making me like clear my schedule. And and I don't know. I think more people have to have that sort of mentality because you're worth it. If you practice every day and you've been working at this for 20 years, you, you're you're worth more. Mm, it is a weird one. I think it's it's twofold. We have this a lot in in this industry anyway. I think something that it does sort of perpetuate, which is really dangerous, is this idea that one, we live in a zero sum game. So if you win, I lose. But also if we don't have this culture of having different services requiring different levels of skill, then you have people who have been playing an instrument for one year competing with people who've been playing the instrument for 60 years, people who are at the peak of their career competing with people who've just started out, which is really odd and I think that really plays into the competitive atmosphere because how can you get away from it if you're always competing with every single person who enters the industry Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, and I think that mm -hmm. different services being rendered by different individuals of different skill levels is really something we need to talk about in more than just the performance side of the industry because in teaching that's just as true I think part of the reason that so much of our journeys feel luck-based is because there's no regulation of the teaching industry, or there is, but it's it's not really very effective at the moment. I mean, you don't need people who are in the middle of a concert career teaching people who are just starting out. It loses its context. And also because teaching people who have been playing for the last 20 years and who are pretty adept is very different than teaching a beginner. And often people who are in that position Um, who we often refer to as maestros, those people haven't studied the pedagogical aspects of teaching somebody who's just starting out or what goes on in the body for years. They haven't experienced that. They haven't been living in that. And I think it's really short-sighted of us to kind of just continue looking always for the best teacher without making any parameters of what that really means and also offering the same service as just learning an instrument to people who are incredibly skilled or people who have not had the chance to develop even a tiny portion of their skill yet. I think something really needs to be done. I'm not saying I have any answers for it. It's just it really feels to me that it's silly that you could happen upon a teacher who will take you from the beginning of your journey right through until Mm -hmm. your concert career or you could end up with somebody who actually doesn't really know very much at all, but who mm-hmm. does have a lot of degrees. Mm-hmm. It's it's really strange, and I think it should be regulated differently. Mm-hmm. Obviously, don't have any solution for it, but it's just you know, now that we're on the topic, I do think that it's very relevant. I love that. I want to I want to validate a lot of what you said about the teaching. I I resonate. Um, I find that when you're teaching young kids or people that are not motivated, it's babysitting. You're being paid to babysit. You're not being paid to teach. So that's why I have a very small studio. Um, I only teach two, two people and none of them live in my city. It's all remote teaching. And, and often people are not willing to pay like my fee, which is fine. That's totally okay. Then you don't value what I have to offer and that's okay. That means you don't value yourself either and you're not going to work for it and, and take 
advantage of what I have to provide. That's totally okay. That means I get free time, right? Mm. Drew, what is a lesson that you would like to impart? This is something we've said on our uh, podcast, and my co-host Trevor Bumgarner says it a lot, and it's so true. Music school can't do everything. It's already way too packed. It already has way too many classes to fit into one student's brain over the course of four years. And what do you add? What do you take away? Right. It can't do everything. But, you know, this is something that we've kind of sat on as a duo is like, but it should give you the tools to be solvent and to be an entrepreneur. And it should actually teach you that what you're doing what you're going into is an entrepreneurial endeavor. It is not a blue collar job path, like going and getting your MBA and getting placed uh, at a bank, you know, and then doing learning on the job for JP Morgan Chase and then getting an entry level job there. That's not how this works. So why do we teach it like that's how it works? Mm. I don't know. Mm. So maybe we fix that. I think there's a lot of people sharing that similar headspace right now. How do we go about fixing that? Um, I think by tempering people's expectations when they go to school, um, that you know, you're probably not going to win that orchestra job. You're probably not going to have a successful quartet. You're probably not going to be a soloist. That's okay. How about you figure out what your voice is creating more agency within the, the artists. So more production classes, like, so everybody can leave and produce their own EP or album, uh, allowing them to maybe take, you know, uh, composition, understanding, composing improvisation tools that will help them be creatives, like literally creatives. What we're, what we're producing is robots is people that can replicate music that's already been written which is fine, but in that model, you can only exchange your time for dollars. You don't have ownership over the means of production, which can have exponential growth in revenue. If you own an IP, an intellectual property, you can make exponential money. You can make infinite money. Uh, John Williams doesn't perform his works. Other people do that for him. And get this, he can have two concerts happening at the same time in two different co continents. If you're just a player, you can't do that. Mm, true. Yeah. So I just think that's a fundamental flaw. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll just mention quickly for our listeners, probably quite important, um, that you mean composer John Williams, not guitarist John Williams, who, as far as I know, has not yet managed to split himself into two um, robot-powered entities. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, expanding our idea of what is possible as a musician would really help. Um, I talk about this quite a lot, but when I started guitar, I didn't really see it as a career opportunity because I didn't really see anybody doing guitar as a living or playing guitar for a living. Um, and the bands you hear and the stuff you hear on the radio, you don't really associate it if you've not been brought up with that as a possibility. Um, I think that classical music education especially, it kind of ostracizes people who have not been brought up in a musical way. So people who haven't seen musicians in the family or artists in the family. Um, and I think that it, it isn't very growth mindset oriented or exploration oriented enough to compensate for that. Um, so I think classical music education really has a long way to go in that. Um, 
because it really makes the barrier to entry for a career quite high, which is fine aged 18, but age seven or eight, it's a little bit more unreasonable, I think. Um, and people within the music world itself have a really clear idea, I think, of what it means for them to be part of the industry and an even shorter list of things that make you an important part of the industry. Um, but I think that definitely one of the things that could help is liberating what it means to be a musician, what a concert is, what playing a concert feels like, what the experience of being an audience member is. Um, you know, those are the things that I think are going to be really necessary changes in what musician as a career path means and then mm -hmm. therefore how we prepare students for that lifestyle. And this is why I just think we may see another resurgence of jazz principles. You know, the recital uh, doctrine of just like, be quiet, don't cheer, don't jeer at concerts. You have people, and even, even before the composer took off center stage, every performer was also a composer, every composer was also a performer. And I think jazz kind of brought that tradition back in a way where improvisation, the act of improvisation, you have a piece of music, a piece of art that happens that is recognizable, but the solos and verses are always different. No matter if you show up or if you listen to the recording, they're always going to be different. And I think that creates a value proposition to go see live music, a value proposition to buy the album because you're not getting the same thing. But in classical music, we're always trying to get the same thing. Play it how Brahms wanted it. And I also want to comment on the fact that trying to play it how Brahms wanted it or trying to reinterpret it, that's not really creative. And I, I, I agree with, with her statement. And I think that being able to create frees you in a way where critics can't show up and you played that wrong. Well, I meant to do that. Yeah, no, you didn't. Yeah, I did. How do you know? You're not me. I played all the wrong notes until the last note. And so I created tension and dissonance until I chose to release you with consonants, right? It, 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 it allows this freedom where you're outside of this judgment where like, yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You're a winner. You're a loser, mm -hmm. right? That disappears. So I think that's where we kind of got to go eventually. Mm. I do think one of the issues is that a lot of people do profit from the introduction of this set of rules that falsely require knowledge and research in order to take part in a career that actually is pretty much just based on momentary interactions, personal connections, and this feeling that's innate and indescribable in words. And it means we're presenting music, which is a living, breathing force, as something that has a place almost in academia or that can be studied purely as theory. And I think that we're forgetting what music is and what it serves and who it serves if we treat it as though people can know more about things that you can't possibly know more. It's a museum. And it's, and it's like, it's from the list tradition. And it, it, that happened and occurred before we had electricity. You know, if you go to any modern concert with any modern artist, there is amplification. There are people whispering and talking. And honestly, people self-police. If people are drunk in the back and kind of wilding, 
everybody else is like, I'm trying to listen, bro. How are you? How are you louder than the sound system right now? Come on, use your inside voice, please. Right. And, and, and that works. But for some reason in classical music, we're just so against amplification and, 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 and advanced acoustics and things like that, because that's not how it was made. That's not how it's intended to be listened to. Then what do you want people to do? There's another thing that people like concerts say, put away your phones. I get like ringtones and things like that. I get that. That's really annoying during a concert. But amplification would fix that. Also, think of all the the uh, marketing they're missing out on. A bunch of a whole reason why, like Travis Scott and Drake, and a, a whole point of going to those concerts too is to brag about it to your friends. So if you're not able to do that and capture a quick moment of the concert and share that with your your circle, you're missing out. The these all these organizations are literally cutting their marketing opportunities off at the at the at the elbow. So it, it's just it's like they have all of these self-defeating policies and philosophies on how the art should be done. It just will not survive in the modern age. Mm. And that's mm. it. That's it. Yeah, it's really a shame. But I think that this is really insightful mm -hmm. and um, you make some really fantastic points. I think however uncomfortable it feels to talk about the business side or the financial side of our industry, it is really important that we have these conversations because if we who are the ones that are inside the industry, the ones who live it and breathe it, the ones who decide who's in it, you know, if none of us take charge of how we want the industry to operate or who we want it to serve, it will basically be decided by the consumer model. And I, I really want to thank you for sharing this because I think it will really, really help a lot of people. I really appreciate that, Rosie. I just read marketing books. I read a lot of books. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I'm a human. I try not to be blinded by what I do and what I would like to like for people to act I, I know how people act I know how I act and what my instinct is so if I just follow my instincts which is to like yeah look I'm with the squad at the symphony here we go oh look this is my favorite part of the violin concerto let me capture this 15 second interval the Seattle Symphony is a great example of an orchestra that survived and weathered the pandemic and the one thing they do I've only been in one concert but one thing they do is they have a uh, a member of the orchestra talk to the audience for five minutes before the show, before intermission, and after the show. And they just kind of give context to what's going to happen. They don't put it in a program note. They literally talk to the audience. What do singer-songwriters do? Okay, my next song is this one. I wrote it. I was on the way from Dresden, on the way to like, uh, from Dresden to like, Munich or whatever and I was watching the 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 scenery and this this idea came up and they just talk about their music like a human like like you're in the living room with an artist right and they're just talking to you just, you're just messing around having a good time we don't do that in classical music and that's why people don't understand this 200 year old music because mm. there's nobody telling the story mm. if we do that that could change a lot mm, absolutely what is a lesson, Drew, that you are working on currently? A lesson that I'm currently working on is that is the lesson in that I am enough. I think 
I just have struggled with understanding that I matter understanding that my perspective matters, my voice matters. And it's easy to kind of fall back into this idea that you're not necessary. And that's 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 dark, and, but it's real. And I know a lot of people struggle with that too. But I, I think I do matter. And I think I need to sit in that more. And I, I find that by playing my instrument and by sharing my journey, it, it really, it proves that to be true. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a big voice or a small voice. We all, using our imagination together, will create a better world. And the best ideas don't come from the top. They often come from the bottom, the people closest to the pain. And it's 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 our job, like your job and my job, to uplift the voices of people who are closest to the pain and try to find ways to utilize our platforms to uplift them and their voices and while also inspiring more people to be brave and understand their power as well. So I'm trying to learn that and get through the, that's kind of also tied to um, this pain of being bad at things. I'm trying to be okay with being bad at things because anything you've never done, you're bad at, but you never grow if you don't, spend time being bad at it first you know for me that's writing lyrics making beats producing music Mm -hmm. um all the things that are gonna eventually make me money and hopefully make my kids money one day (laughs) Mm. do you find i find this that it's still more difficult to um be bad at something in your playing than it is to be bad at new things oh yeah i'm uh, that's why I don't do them enough as I should like scales and also extended techniques, fiddle techniques, chopping techniques, trying innovating the instrument and the way it's played. I think that that is where I can provide value. There's so there's just, you can keep innovating, you can keep creating and uh, everything is there. So, but it's, it's not easy because, um, you know, you have outside voices and inner voices telling you you're not enough or you're not good enough. You're not good. Why are you sharing this? Why are you doing this? But I think, you know, this is why meditation is so good. You, you got to quiet those voices and just mm-hmm. just be and create and, mm-hmm. and, and get a little bit better every single day. So that's the lesson I'm really uh, trying to learn. Mm. <laughs> It's interesting that you mention meditation. I think there's something very meditative about the practice and the playing process and the experience. Um, And not that it's relaxing or peaceful in any way, but just, you know, in that it is an opportunity to face your feelings, which is not always easy and which, if left unattended, can be Mm -hmm. quite crushing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it's brave facing that. I really think it is. And I don't think the meditation or practice gets a good enough rep mm. for how difficult Facing it your be. fears, right? It's like mm. the most cliche woo-woo stuff. Yeah. Face your fears, <laughs> kid. You can be anything you want to be. It's mm. true. Yeah. It's true. But the, the work that is hard is what most people don't do, and mm. that's what most people don't have. Yeah. So yeah, be the difference. Be, be the type of person who has the courage to do it. Mm. With hard work, diligence, and discipline – Luck happens, Mm. but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to put yourself in a position to be lucky. 
And I think that's one thing that people like they kind of miss out on. Like if you didn't practice and learn how to compose and learn how to write your own music and learn how to play an instrument and do all these things, if you got the call to write for the next, you know, Steven Spielberg movie, could you do it? Mm-hmm. Probably not because you didn't do the work. You still got the call. That's lucky. But you couldn't capitalize upon the luck. Mm-hmm. So work on yourself so you're at a point when the lucky thing happens, you can step up to the plate and execute. Mm, absolutely. That is really fantastic and actually super relevant advice, I think. Um, thank you so much. This has been really inspiring. We talked about a lot of things that we often don't talk about, um, not just on the podcast, but in general in this uh, industry. Uh, is there anything else, any last wisdom that you want to share with us? Um, continue to listen to the Fret Not podcast. It's a wonderful <laughs> forum for people to have conversations that aren't typically had mm-hmm. in in this world. And if you are hungry for more, be sure to check out the Faking Notes podcast. Mm-hmm. You can get it anywhere where you find your podcast. My friend Trevor Bumgarner and I, with our producer Daniel uh, Lim, uh, bring in wonderful guests. We're hoping that we can get Rosie in one day. Oh, I would love to. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I think that these conversations are very important. And if you are destined, you feel like you're destined to be a musician, an entrepreneur in this space. You need to listen to our podcast. We will we will help provide you with tools that'll help you along your way. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Drew, for coming up. Thank you, Rosie. This is great. Thank you for listening to Fret Not. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review and like and subscribe to be the first to hear each new episode as soon as it comes out. Join me in two weeks' time where I'll be talking to Jack Hancher, one of my favourite British players. We talk about success, artistry, the UK guitar circuit and how he's dealing with competition.